ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, Hank Hanegraaff concludes his interview with Eric Castle on his book, Animal Algorithms, a book that Hanegraaff calls intoxicatingly interesting. Hanegraaff is first to speak as we pick it up here. You have done engineering work for NASA and the FAA. You've been a consultant, and you point out in the book that if you compare the most impressive instances of animal navigation with the most advanced navigational systems of modern aircraft, you recognize a process that is top-down. There are numerous reasons why this is top-down and structured, and I think that's worth elaborating on as well. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the, again, one of the reasons I became interested in this topic and thought it was instructive to address, and that is from an engineering point of view. Anybody who's worked as an engineer or even a computer programmer knows that in order to develop a system or a software program, It's a top-down process. You have to start with some higher-level goal, some purpose for the system, and then there's a number of steps that you go through to develop that system. And the same is true, well, again, my experience in particular with navigation systems, but other engineering systems that I've worked on as well, but it is a very structured, top-down process that you have to follow, and If you don't, you end up with mistakes. You end up with something that has design flaws in it. There's a recent example of this with the Boeing 737 MAX, where there were obviously some mistakes made during the development process of that system that ended up in two aircraft crashes. And so that's unfortunately a negative example, but it illustrates the point that When you have these complex systems, you have to go through a very rigorous, strict, top-down engineering process. A couple of aspects of why that's important. One is these are integrated systems. In other words, there's different elements to the systems that are involved. So in the case of navigation, you have sensors. You have a control system. In the case of aircraft, you have a flight control system. But in the case of animals, birds... They have their own flight control system. And then you have the actual algorithms themselves that are controlling the entire process. All of that has to be integrated. Otherwise, it's going to malfunction. And another word we use in engineering is coherent. They have to function coherently. In other words, work properly together. And again, the examples that keep showing up now in some of these animal systems indicate that these are highly engineered systems that actually rival the engineering that's involved in developing aircraft navigation systems. To me, that's one of the most amazing aspects of all of this. So let's go back to the honeybee again. They have these specialized structures in the eyes and the brain to see polarized light And thus, as you're explaining, they're able to navigate by that. And that brings up the issue of the coordinated development of the eyes and the brain and how evolution tries to account for that. So I I oftentimes thought about the human eyes, 
Darwin called them organs of extreme perfection and complication. So I'm looking around as I'm speaking to you, and I'm sure you're looking around as well. And as we do, there's this vast number of impulses that are traveling from our eyes through millions of little nerve fibers, and they're transmitting information to this complex computing center in our brain called the visual cortex. And without the coordinated development of the eye and the brain in synergistic fashion, the isolated development of either is not only meaningless, but counterproductive. And I think that's sort of what you're alluding to. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, it's interesting that Darwin actually addressed this issue in, in certain aspects. He discusses this issue of form and function. In order, for example, for a behavior to occur, you need two things at minimum. One is the form. You need the physical mechanisms to actually execute the behavior, like a bird flying, for example, or a fish swimming. But then functionally, you need some control mechanisms that actually perform the function or control the function. And Darwin wrestled with this, and he, in the end, he kind of dismissed this as not a significant issue. But as you alluded, it's not an insignificant issue because, particularly in the case of behaviors that we've been talking about, you have these different physical elements, and then you have what I'll call software elements, like things that are residing in an algorithm, for example. Well, it doesn't do much good to have one without the other. You could have a physical element capable of, like, for example, a bird having some navigation sensor, but if the bird does not have the algorithm to actually use that information to navigate, it's useless. And so how you can explain the origin of all of these different aspects developing through a basically a random step-by-step Darwinian process in a holistic, integrated manner, to me, seems highly implausible. You know, one of the geniuses of your particular book is that it's so interesting. I mean, you can get caught up in the technicalities of all of this, but you're constantly pointing to different animals like the ant or the beetle or bees or butterflies or the loggerhead turtle that we talked about. And then you're telling a story about each one of these and you're opening our eyes to the complexities that are involved and just the majesty and mystery of these animal algorithms. I want to just emphasize that for a moment because I want people to get your book. And by the way, your book is available to anyone that wants a copy just by supporting the Ministry of the Christian Research Institute. So you can go to the web at equip.org and simply ask for your copy for your support of this ministry. But the genius of this book is the animals themselves. It's not complex. It's just intoxicatingly interesting. On the back of this book, it says, as a blurb from the Discovery Institute, how do some birds, turtles, and insects possess navigational abilities that rival the best man-made navigational technologies. Who or what taught the honeybee its dance or its hive mates how to read the complex message of that dance? How do the blind mound-building termites 
master passive heating and cooling strategies that dazzle skilled human architects. Well, in this book, you get a sense of how all of that takes place. And I think that's the intoxicating nature of the book and one of the reasons that people need to read this book. Because again, when you read this book, the one thing that keeps going through your brain is, oh my Lord, how majestic are your ways. You just revel in the majesty of God. Here's another example that you talk about in your book, The Wasp. And the amazing ability that a wasp has to paralyze its captured prey doesn't kill it, but paralyzes it. And there's a reason for that. And how that sting accurately is made between two distinct plates on the underside of a bee's neck immobilizes that bee so it can be used as food later on. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's one of those behaviors that is really difficult to explain developing through some random mutation, trial and error kind of a process. (laughs) Because in the process of the wasp executing this behavior, it's so exact that, okay, you could have a wasp try, you know, a hundred (laughs) times to perform this maneuver. Well, chances are, okay, maybe it might get it right one out of a hundred. Well, how does such a behavior develop and evolve? You know, that seems like such a highly improbable thing to occur through a random process. Yeah, it really is hard to explain. Another thing you talk about in the book is complex program societies. And you've alluded to this, but if we consider the ant again, the species live in groups and they exhibit this complex behavior that's associated with social group lifestyles. So they're able to have this division of labor. They have caste, they have consensus building, they utilize symbolic language. So you have these complex social behaviors that appear to be programmed and not programmed arbitrarily, but top-down programming for the very start. Yeah, exactly. And again, these insects that reside in these, some people call them, in some cases, superorganisms, because you have a colony of ants that sometimes consists of millions, literally millions of ants that reside within the colony. But yet the colony as a whole exhibits behaviors such that the ants are able to carry out the proper behaviors at the proper time. So, again, whether it's foraging food, finding another nest, tending to the queen, tending to the pupae, there's a number of different behaviors that the ants perform, but it somehow is all coordinated, but there is no master coordinator for the colony. In other words, there's not some top-down mechanism that's directing the ants to do the behaviors that they need to do. These are all basically independent animals. One way of thinking about it is now in the world of artificial intelligence, right, and people have actually developed these drones that perform different kinds of things flying drones in some cases, and they're able to, in some ways, replicate what a large group of 
animals might perform, except that you're talking about a, an electromechanical drone programmed through artificial intelligence, but they're all independent actors. But in the case of these social colonies, there's a programmed control of the individuals, in this case ants, such that each ant is actually making its own decision about what behavior to perform at any particular time. But it's all coordinated such that, you know, some group of ants will do behavior A, another group of ants will be behavior B, etc. And all of that is programmed into the brains of these ants somehow in this really complex algorithm and controlling the behavior of literally millions of animals within the colony. It's, 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 <laughs> again, it's just amazing. And as you say, it would be the envy of a corporate manager. Even the altruism of termites is fascinating, and you write about that in the book as well. So this is particularly interesting, and I think informative, instructive in that Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, talk about the selfish gene, and yet you find altruism in termites where they will fight off army ants and they'll give up their life for their fellow termites in the process. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, the animals aren't all selfish as Dawkins, you know, simplistically likes to view evolution where animals are behaving in a purely selfish manner for their own existence or the existence of their offspring. And a lot of these social colonies, animals such as some of the ants, actually do exhibit altruistic behaviors where basically they're, they're sacrificing themselves for the good of the colony. It's one of those aspects of this that's, again, a bit of a challenge for our Darwinian point of view. Something else you write about that I found fascinating is insect architecture. So these structures built by animals that human architects are marveling at in the present. Right, and I think you mentioned earlier the termites that build these amazing termite nests, which are really these giant mounds. And there's a lot of engineering that goes into the construction of these nests because they have a number of different elements to it. One of them is controlling the temperature. They're able to actually control the temperature within the nest, which is important because they can only exist within a certain temperature range. And then there's ventilation systems. They build ventilation systems. Aspects of the nest include being able to drain water away from the core parts of the nest. They actually, uh, in some cases, we have animals, some ants, that do farming. They actually are able to farm and use that crop that they grow, fungus type of crop, typically, that's used as a source of food. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects of this. One of the most fascinating ones that's really interesting to look at is a particular species in Australia called a compass thermite. They build these really large mounds, and because Australia is located in such a hot climate, and these mounds are in the interior of the continent, typically, they have a three-dimensional design such that the narrow face of the mound faces the sun, and the wide face of the mound 
faces away from the sun. So it, again, it's purposely designed to minimize the heating of the mound due to the sun during the course of a day. Again, it's a really sophisticated engineering design. So you say a social insect, like an ant or a termite, is the closest to a talented human architect. And again, just to recapitulate what you said about termites, they have nests that can reach more than 20 feet high that include a royal chamber, nurseries, gardens, waste dumps, a well, a ventilation system that reduces heat and removes carbon dioxide. And these termites are blind. And then, as you just alluded to, they include roofs with eaves to keep water out of the nest. And I thought the most fascinating thing that you wrote about this is that the airflow design of termite nests was the inspiration for the world's first all-natural cooling building structure in Zimbabwe. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised when I read that. There's a whole field now in science called biomimetics where scientists and engineers take something from the world of biology, typically an animal, or from the microbiology, where they're able to analyze a system that exists and take that principle of how that system is designed and apply it to a human design. And that, to me, is a perfect illustration of that. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about spiders. You're right about spiders. And obviously, when we see a spider web, we can so glibly look at it and then look away without recognizing the absolute majesty and the fact that these spider webs are custom built. They're not one size fits all, but they're custom built. And, you know, the different kinds of silk involved in building these spider webs and the strength of this silk. I mean, it's just amazing as you have articulated this in the book. Yes, exactly. Humans have been trying for years to replicate the construction of silk and you know, they've come close, but in fact, they've never been able to fully replicate a material that has all the properties that silk has. It's really amazing. Silk is constructed of a number of different proteins, and the process for manufacturing silk, again, with, when we're talking about ants, that is a complex process and obviously it has to involve a number of genes in the genome, and these proteins are complex proteins, actually. And so the way that the spiders use it is they're actually able to produce different kinds of silk because when they construct their webs, they actually use several different types of silk depending upon what part of the web they're actually building at the time. So in other words, they have you know, the basic outline of the web, but then there's a number of different things they use the silk for. One of them is sort of what we would call a kind of a guy wire. And then there's also silk that the spider itself uses in addition to the web to maneuver around. So anyway, there's a number of different types of silk, depending on what the need is. In other words, the strength and flexibility that's required for the function of that piece of silk within the web. 
<laughs> it really is amazing how, again, this is all programmed somehow in the spider, how to use the silk. It knows what silk to produce for which part of the web at which time. It really is amazing how all of that is orchestrated in a spider. And how does a spider locate the prey? Well, yeah, that's another really interesting aspect. The spider is able to detect the location of a prey three-dimensionally if a prey actually gets caught in the web. The spider is able to sense the location based on the information it gets, in other words, the feedback it gets from the silk within the web. So, in other words, it changes the vibration pattern of the... The kind of silk changes the vibration pattern? Right, exactly. That's incredible. Yeah, just like a piano string, for example, they have um, different vibration characteristics, and the spiders are able to sense that. That's a mind blower in and of itself. You have an epigraph in your book. It's by Richard Dawkins, and I want you to elaborate on this. Dawkins says, what lies at the heart of every living thing is not a fire, not warm breath, not a spark of life. It's information, it's words, it's instructions. If you want to understand life, don't think about vibrant, throbbing gels and oozes. Think about information technology. I mean, this seems to be an incredible admission on the part of Dawkins. Yeah, I find that interesting because Dawkins does, in many cases like this one in particular, where he does recognize the existence of complexity and design. You know, he talks a lot about design, obviously, in his writings. But he doesn't really follow through on analyzing, okay, well, what's the ultimate origin of design, or in this case, information. He just kind of, you know, dismisses that as a problem for Darwinian evolution. And in the book, I go into a fair amount of discussion about the work of William Dembski and others about the problem of information in biological systems. And the work of Dembski and others is, a lot of it's based on this concept of no free lunch. In other words, there's some algorithms that mathematicians have developed where they're able to demonstrate that you basically, in the terms of information, you don't get something for nothing. You can't just create information ex nihilo out of nothing. And there's plenty of material that exists, published material in academia and and others that have demonstrated that that is the case. You really cannot just generate information out of nothing. And in particular, when you examine a Darwinian process where the claim is made that, in fact, a random process of random mutation and natural selection actually is capable of creating this kind of information that we're talking about. But Really, when you examine the work that's been done by people like Dembski and others, it's a claim that really has no basis in fact. It's just a, it's a reach <laughs> to claim that you can create, for example, some of the algorithms that we've been talking about, creating them basically from nothing. It's a big problem for Darwinian evolution. 
we know of only one source of functional information, and that's intelligence. I want you to talk about something that you elaborate on in the book as well, and that is the evolutionary biologist that often is relegated to citing the great unlikelihood of the same trait arising in multiple lineages and how that is improbable. It's improbable that exactly the same evolutionary pathway could ever be traveled twice, much less three or four or a million times. Right. And that, again, this is another one of the big challenges for Darwinian evolution. And and that's this concept that they call convergent evolution, where a characteristic will show up in organisms that they know to be completely unrelated, so it couldn't be common descent. So that's been a problem that's been recognized, at least, for a long time in physical terms. When you look at the fossil record, for example, going back over millions of years where they see characteristics, physical characteristics, indicating where organisms have a similar kind of characteristic that they know they're unrelated. So that's been a challenge. And what I talk about is how you have the same kind of a challenge that's obvious now in regard to animal behaviors, where you have behaviors that show up in completely unrelated animal taxa. But again, the problem is that Darwinians just use this term, oh, it's convergent evolution. Well, it's a term really without any meaning. The part of that that they use to actually try to explain it is this concept that they call selection pressure, meaning that there's pressure due to natural selection for these characteristics to occur in different animal groups in this case. Well, again, that's another sort of a fallacious argument where, first of all, a lot of Darwinians don't even agree that there's this nebulous concept called selection pressure. In other words, it's a fallacious argument logically because they're saying, okay, there's something in the environment that's creating this theoretical pressure for an organism to evolve in a certain way. Well, (laughs) the more you think about it and examine the whole concept, it just kind of falls apart. The only aspect of this that I give any credence to is the work that some people have done in the so-called evo-devo world, where there is evidence in some cases, for example, in the case of birds, let's say, if you have an animal that's going to be flying, there are certain characteristics of wings that are necessary and other aspects of the animal, in this case a bird, that are common. In other words, you get certain wing designs that will be sufficient for flight. Well, you can, at least conceptually, you can think, okay, well, that's going to constrain the evolution of an animal that's going to fly, that their wings are going to have pretty similar characteristics. So that's somewhat plausible, and you can say the same thing about fish in terms of the fin designs, etc. But in the case of, like, the animal behaviors that I talk about, many of these complex behaviors, there's really no constraint. There's nothing constraining the way that such behaviors could or would develop. 
they're entirely independent. There's nothing forcing a behavior to occur in one group of animals in a similar way to a completely unrelated group of animals. That just isn't the case in terms of these behaviors. So this whole idea of convergent evolution and selection pressure, I don't believe even apply to the things that I've talked about. As you're talking, Eric, I can't help but think of the fact that we hear this mantra over and over again, particularly in an age of COVID, follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. We hear it over and over ad nauseum, ad infinitum. And I think it is important to follow the science, but if you really follow the science, will you arrive at the twin pillars of the evolutionary paradigm? Well, that's the big question here. And I think really the more fundamental question there is when you say follow the science, what are you defining as science? Mm. So the problem that I do talk about a little bit in the book is this whole notion of naturalism. The problem is that the reigning paradigm within science today is, is naturalism. So that the explanations or the allowable explanations that can be given for the existence of something within science has to have a purely naturalistic explanation. You can't invoke other causes, supernatural causes, something that you can't measure physically. It's really a materialistic point of view. And that's where we're stuck at, for the most part, within science. And that's why something like intelligent design is basically ruled out from the beginning because it doesn't fit within the naturalistic, materialistic worldview. You also point out that the evolutionist is conflating survival and arrival, survival of the fittest with the arrival of the fittest, and I think that's worth a comment or so. Yeah, and I think more specifically how that relates to the topics in my book is trying to explain the origin of things that are novel, and in particular, in this case, novel behaviors. This is another big challenge for Darwinian evolution is explaining the origin of completely novel, in some cases, body designs, like those that took place during the Cambrian explosion. That's a challenge there. And in this case, we're talking about the origin of completely novel behaviors and how can a Darwinian process be a reasonable explanation for that? And some of the details I go into in the book address that. And one set of examples relates to the social behaviors that we talked about. There is actually a fair amount of research that's gone into the genetics of the social insects. And what they have found, in fact, is that the insects that live within social colonies do exhibit a significant number of genetic, and there's different terms for this, but some cases they call them orphan genes, and there's different variations on that. But basically what it means is that there's novel genes that show up in the genomes of these social animals, as opposed to these animals that basically live solitary. And we're talking about hundreds, and, or in some cases, thousands of either novel or highly modified genes. Well, again, that is a significant challenge for an explanation from a Darwinian point of view to explain how 
such huge changes in the genome could occur through a step-by-step mutation-by-mutation process. Yeah, you know, intelligent design is something that you talk about quite a bit in the later chapters of the book. Evolutionists who are committed to the rule known as methodological naturalism are always insisting that this competing explanation, I'm talking about intelligent design, must not be considered. And so you say that this particular predilection on the part of evolutionists renders evolutionary theory not an inference to the best explanation, but less impressively an inference to the best allowed explanation. In other words, intelligent design is simply dismissed. It's not allowed. You can't consider the best explanation, but you have to follow their rules. And their rules eliminate what is the best explanation. In fact, I think one of the most insightful aspects of your book is a chart. And I usually don't like charts a whole lot. I just, I don't know why. I just don't like charts. But you have a chart, figure seven, one in chapter seven of the book. And in that chart, you're comparing blind evolution with intelligent design. And you've got like 10 different categories. And there are only three of those categories in which blind evolution has some plausible explanation such as intelligent design would. But most of the categories cannot be accounted for, at least with real intelligence, when you're looking at blind evolution. Yeah, again, like you said, that is the fundamental problem here, that those that are advocates of Darwinian evolution and biology basically try to rule out other explanations that don't fit their naturalistic, materialistic worldview. And they use that as the pretense for ruling out any consideration for intelligent design. But, you know, I think what we're finding over time is that fair-minded people are coming to a different conclusion, that it's really sort of rigging the game by, by ruling out other explanations such as intelligent design in the first place and not even considering it. It is interesting that, not to go off on a tangent here, but there are a number of people in the world of biology and related sciences that have recognized for quite a while now the limitations of Darwinian evolution. And so a number of evolutionary biologists have been proposing what they call this extended evolutionary synthesis, where they've tried to bring in a number of other mechanisms that they think might be plausible to explain evolution. And I discussed some of those a little bit in the book, but for the most part, those have actually failed. They are interesting. There's some research going on in different aspects of that that show some promise, but really, for the most part, all of these other processes that they've proposed really fail as explanations. And so... Hopefully, people are waking up to the fact that Darwinian evolution, based on this philosophy of naturalism, is inadequate, and they need to start looking at other plausible explanations, and hopefully, including intelligent design. There's sort of a phobia that is present in the world today, and I don't know if you coined this word, but I love it. You talk about teleophobia. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, I just happened to stumble across that word in my research. I don't even remember how now, but what I was finding is that evolutionary biologists, and actually not just them, but a lot of people in biology and in, in a lot of the sciences, they purposely avoid using the word purpose, and in particular the word teleology, which means purpose. And they'll go through a lot of mental gymnastics to avoid using that word because they don't like the implications, obviously, because it means if there is some purpose in some aspect of biology, well, where did that purpose come from? Right? That raises a whole other set of questions that they don't even want to deal with. But examples of where they end up going with this and why it's a dead end is because and there's actually been books written about this whole issue, a lot of research in the literature about it. What they'll do is they'll say, okay, what's the function of the human heart or a heart in an animal? Well, normally you say, well, the function of the heart is to pump blood throughout the organism. Okay. Well, they won't even say that. They'll say, no, the heart evolved over time as a process of Mutation and natural selection, and because of selection, it evolved in a certain way to pump blood throughout the organism, completely obscuring <laughs> what the ultimate purpose of the heart is. And they've just completely obscured the meaning of the word, not just purpose, but function and goals. They don't even want to talk about any aspects like that. And that's why I ended up applying the word teleophobic to the people that are thinking this way because they're afraid of actually talking about things like ultimate purpose in the Aristotelian sense because of the implications. I want to go through a bit of a lightning round with you to end this podcast, and it has to do with common objections to intelligent design. Let me just enumerate some of them as you do in the book and then get your quick response. So one of the common objections to intelligent design is it's religion. It's not science. Yeah, that's a fallacy. The work that all of the people that have been working on intelligent design, for example, the work of Mike B., Steve Meyer, others, if you examine their work, it's all science. There's not a religious aspect to the technical work that goes into their research and their arguments. It is science. It's following truth wherever it leads. The National Academy of Sciences notes that intelligent design is not a scientific concept because it cannot be empirically tested. Yeah, and that's not true. One way of thinking about it is in a similar way that evolutionary theory they examine the fossil record. Well, the fossil record is an empirical way of examining the history of animals throughout time. That's empirical. In the same way, those of us working in ID are doing the same thing. And again, all of the information and research described in my book is based on empirical evidence. Another objection, ID is a, we've heard this over and over again, ad nauseum ad infinitum, it's a science stopper. 
Right. The accusation is that, okay, you say the explanation is ID, okay, then we're going to stop doing research because there's no longer reason to research that particular aspect of science any longer, which is just a fallacious argument because, in fact, I would argue that the truth is the other way around because take the example we talked about a few minutes ago of convergent evolution. Well, in many cases where, where there's an observation made about some common characteristics in different organisms, and Darwinians will just say, oh, it's convergent evolution. Well, <laughs> that's the science stopper right there. They say, well, then, okay, there's no reason to investigate that any further. But in the case of intelligent design, typically what we're trying to say is, okay, we have some indication based on observations that something is designed. Now, let's go research this farther. Let's find out, okay, what's the genetics behind this? How did this aspect of some organism develop? What's controlling the genes? How is the behavior, for example, programmed into a brain? That's actually inviting more research. Here's another one. Intelligent design appeals to teleology. It appeals to purpose and that's not allowed in science. It's verboten, as your German friend Gunther Beckley would put it. It's forbidden because the goals or purposes that you're alluding to have no place in biology. They only have a place in the study of human behavior. Yeah, again, that's back to the same problem of not having, not allowing the discussion even about some higher-level goals or purpose when talking about biological systems. But it's just, again, it's a fallacy that, in that case, that one actually does lead to a dead end in science. And again, a different example here would be these insect social colonies, where there really is some higher-level set of goals and purposes that are designed into the function of these social colonies. Well, if you're not even allowed to talk about that, you're stopping science at that point. So, it's, again, that's a really fallacious argument. Yeah, that's well said. Another objection, intelligent design is false because if it were true, then each animal would be perfectly designed, uh, perfectly designed by an omnipotent, all-wise God perfectly designed to function with 100% efficiency within its ecological niche. This is, I think, particularly interesting, something you talk about in the book that we haven't discussed on this podcast. Yeah, there's some history to that particular argument. It goes way back to prior to Darwin, where the reigning paradigm, obviously at that time, was basically young earth creationism, and that all life on Earth was created relatively recently. And so the implication of that was if God was the creator and God is perfect and he's going to create all of life that functions perfectly, that therefore there would be no design flaws in that creation or in this case, organisms. Well, there's a couple of problems, right? One is that the science now is telling us that young earth creationism is not supported by the evidence that, in fact, life has existed on earth for 
quite a significant period of time, millions, if not billions of years. So that's a long period of time. And so the way I would push back on that argument is twofold. One is, even if organisms were created a long time ago in a perfect manner, well, as we know with things like climate change, over time the environment changes and an animal that was designed to function in one environment will not function as well in a changing different environment. So that's one reason that it could change. The other reason and one aspect of evolution that actually is correct is the fact that genomes do have mutations. So they actually do degrade over time. So that actually causes a degradation in the function of an animal, for example, and will cause, you know, not to function as well as maybe it did previously as it degrades over time. So there's different ways of refuting that particular argument. Another objection, suboptimal design. And this is something I've talked to your colleagues, William Dembski and Stephen Meyer about. And the answer that you give in the book in part has to do with constrained optimization. And I think that's a concept that people have to get in their minds in order to be able to refute this particular objection. Yes, exactly. And I think this is a little bit of an understandable argument that some people give because not everybody's an engineer. But those of us who are engineers perfectly understand this issue because whenever you design a system, and again, we're, as we talked about before, it, when you're designing a system in a proper manner from the top down, you make design trade-offs all the time. And you can see that in anything that's engineered, for example, an automobile, airplanes, particularly complex devices where there's trade-offs in terms of energy, efficiency, speed, you know, a lot of different aspects. You have to make trade-offs because you can't perfectly design something to function in a 100% way in every aspect. So you make a trade-off. Well, the result of that trade-off is okay, something may function really well in one aspect, but not quite as well in some other aspect. And that's just physics. That's, there's just nothing you can do about that. Let me just mention one more. We haven't covered all of the objections that you cover in the book, but one of the objections that I want to end with is the objection of the problem of who designed the designer. So there's a thought in the minds of people that if you have a designed universe, then you have to have a designer of that designed universe. And then the question is, who designed that designer? And then you have an infinite regress. Yeah, and again, that's a common objection that some people use. Richard Dawkins, in particular, used it in his book, The God Delusion. It's really, that's a philosophical and theological issue that I didn't want to go into too deeply in the book because there's plenty of other philosophers that have addressed this, like William Lane Craig. I highly recommend his writings, but there's plenty of other ones that have addressed that particular issue. Again, it's really a fallacious argument. It is. And so many of the arguments against intelligent design are not well thought out. And I really appreciate the fact that you 
give the objection and then you give a cogent answer to that objection, I think is helpful to everybody that reads your book. But what's most fascinating about this book to me is the actual insects that you talk about. It opens this Lilliputian world of enormous complexity and design that cannot be explained away by blind macroevolutionary processes. Animal algorithms, evolution, and the mysterious origin of ingenious instincts by Eric Castle. This book, available through the Ministry of the Christian Research Institute, it's a must-read. It's something that you want to have in your library. And you can take, even with your kids, you can take one example and you can start intoxicating them with the mystery and the majesty of something that seemingly is so so simple as an ant. And when you start to unravel that Lilliputian world in the mind of a child, their minds will be directed in a proper trajectory. I think this book is just ingenious in so many different ways. It's interesting. It's a relatively quick read for the kind of complex information that's going to be opened up as a whole world for you to explore for the rest of your life. And then when you're outdoors or even indoors and you see some of these creations, you'll look at them through different eyes. So I really deeply appreciate the work that you've done in this regard. Well, thanks again, Hank. I really appreciate your comments. And I'm humbled that, that you're so supportive for the book. I'm really thankful for your support. Well, it is with the entirety of my heart that I support this book, Animal Algorithms. You can find a copy on the web at equip.org. And I think if you've followed Eric in this podcast, I think you'll want to read the book. And you certainly will see him as one of the most interesting, informative, and inspirational people, particularly as it fits our mission statement. And there's so much... That was Hank Hanegraaff interviewing Eric Castle on his recently released book, Animal Algorithms, Evolution and the Mysterious Origin of Ingenious Insects. You'll find more stimulating content like this at Hank Hanegraaff's podcast titled Hank Unplugged. And we do want to tell them thank you for the use of this material here at ID the Future. We thank you, too, for listening. Until next time, for ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.